Yeah, it's it, it's an interesting question. Um, so, I think I think where we start from with this is, is is a recognition that we are at the beginning of what is the fourth industrial revolution. So, so, so technology, I think we will will play a very significant role. But that opportunity comes with a real challenge for universities that we we need to take stock and think what we're delivering. But increasingly, a lot of our interaction with students is going to be mediated by technology. This podcast is sponsored by Salesforce.org. Salesforce.org is the dedicated team at Salesforce that delivers technology to non-profits, educational institutions and philanthropic organisations so they can connect with others and do more good. Salesforce.org empowers higher education with Education Cloud, a set of integrated solutions built on the world's number one CRM, developed for the specific needs of the industry and in close collaboration with the community it represents. From building brand awareness, transforming the applicant experience, enhancing student services, building lifelong alumni relationships, or managing change and optimising technology across the campus, Education Cloud supports institutions to drive student success and institutional success at scale. Learn how institutions are paving the way for the future of higher education and driving all kinds of innovations with Education Cloud by visiting the website salesforce.org forward slash higher ed and exploring the higher education customer stories. Hello everyone and welcome to The Edge, supported by salesforce.org. This series is all about new ways of doing things in higher education leadership. We'd love to hear from you. Tweet us using the hashtag EdTechEdge. We're back this week with an episode all about higher ed and tech in 2019 and beyond. In our final episode of 2019, we asked vice chancellors and presidents of universities what their top concerns were in 2019, what they see coming online in 2025 and beyond, and the role of technology in solving some of higher education's challenges. You'll hear about Brexit and international academic relations, university and perceived value, funding and mental health and well-being, and the online and physical campus. All of this week's guests look at society's big problems and think about how university combined with technology and human ingenuity is well-placed to help. To kick us off, here is Jean-Noël Ezengard, Vice-Chancellor at the University of Roehampton. So um, I'm uh, the Vice-Chancellor of the University uh, uh, of Roehampton, uh, which is uh, based in southwest London. Uh, we are a um, collegiate university uh, founded by uh, four uh, colleges uh, which came together over the years uh, to form the university. Our roots are in initial teacher education uh, and uh, our first college was established uh, in uh, 1842 mm-hmm. uh, by the Church of England uh, to train uh, young women to become teachers um, really to uh, make a difference to society and uh, work in deprived communities. Um, and, and this uh, has stayed with us as one of our core values uh, and the social progress uh, aspect of the university is very strong. Uh, education is still a, a large department for us. It's about a fifth of our students 
Um, but uh, we teach uh, across uh, a wide array of subject areas, uh, ranging from the life sciences uh, through to business, uh, as well as uh, the arts and humanities. Uh, Roehampton is a, a university which is very diverse. Um, uh, we have a, a, a large number of students who are first generation uh, into university. Uh, about 60% of our students are first generation uh, into higher education. Uh, and we're also very diverse uh, in terms uh, of uh, where our students come from. Uh, just under 60% of our students uh, are from uh, black and ethnic minority groups uh, in the UK, and that's split about one third, one third, one third uh, Asian, uh, black and uh, mixed uh, um, ethnicities. And uh, we uh, do very well uh, in terms of widening participation uh, metrics. Uh, and there are other indicators which I could quote uh, mm -hmm. where we are one of the best performing uh, universities uh, in the UK uh, in terms of widening participation. Um, we are very strong uh, in student satisfaction uh, and uh, we pride ourselves in the quality uh, of our community at Roehampton. Uh, which is rooted in our four colleges uh, and the work they do with our students to build a sense of belonging. Fantastic. Just to kind of go a bit broader, um, this episode is all about higher education and technology in 2019 and beyond. Um, with your Vice Chancellor perspective, what have been the pressing issues of 2019? So, so I probably would say there have been three uh, pressing issues. Um, one, which you probably were aware of and, and uh, other colleagues uh, on this episode uh, will, I'm sure, be quoting, and that's Brexit. And, that, and that's about the uncertainty uh, surrounding uh, the, the exit from the European Union. Um, a large number of our staff uh, are from the EU, about 15%, uh, and uh, around 8% of our students are from, from the EU. Um, and, and obviously, you know, we want to make sure that uh, they feel uh, welcome uh, and reassured at, uh, about being at the university. Um, but more broadly, uh, I think uh, there is uh, quite a lot of change uh, ahead of us in the higher education sector. Um, and uh, the second uh, concern uh, across the sector has been uh, the review uh, of the post-18 education system uh, mm -hmm. in the UK. What uh, people call the Orgar Review, um, and and that's highlighted a number of uh, uh, of issues with the system, but also made a number of proposals uh, in terms of rebalancing uh, the higher education system. Some of those proposals uh, have been very welcome. For instance, the introduction of of maintenance grants, um, but some uh, are going to be more challenging for for universities uh, to uh, address. Um, in particular, I think that there is this, this notion of high-value high value subjects, which is starting to appear uh, in, the, in the discourse there, uh, which uh, as a university where uh, a lot of our teaching is around the arts and humanities, mm -hmm. um, we don't subscribe to and we believe that, that arts and humanities uh, are actually a very high-value subject in terms of their benefit uh, to society. And, and their intellectual benefit. Um, but inevitably, uh, they, they sometimes yield uh, starting salaries uh, for students uh, which are lower than uh, students in, in STEM uh, subjects, for instance. Um, now, now, that, that gap uh, isn't, isn't one that uh, carries on for, for very long. And, and often, arts and humanities students catch up because they, they go into 
uh, a wide array uh, of of jobs, uh, including some some highly technical, um, highly paid jobs. Um, but nonetheless, I think we just need to be mindful that uh, universities cannot be only judged uh, by what could be termed as high value subject in terms of in terms of starting salaries, for mm-hmm. instance. The, the third concern for us, and I think that's a concern uh, across the sector, uh, is uh, is mental health and well-being uh, of, of students. Uh, we see uh, increasing demands uh, on our uh, well-being services, and this is an area where Roehampton uh, really does a, a lot of, uh, of wonderful work. Uh, we we have uh, partnerships in place with the NHS. Uh, we. Uh, have a, a very strong uh, uh, counselling service uh, at the university. This year, we've introduced a, a, an app uh, to support our students' well-being, uh, rural well-being, which students can use to um, uh, uh, to, to understand more about uh, what, what uh, uh, living a healthy life uh, is about, but also to to promote university. Uh, events and activities uh, around health and well-being. And, and overall, I mean, we, we believe that's having a very positive impact on our students. So if you look at uh, the students who accessed our counselling services, uh, over 50% of those that accessed counselling services uh, uh, tell us that the support they receive was a, an important factor in them staying uh, at university. Mm. Um, and uh, over 60% uh, say that uh, actually, the support that they received at the university was the main reason uh, that helped them uh, with their academic progress. Uh, and uh, uh, over two thirds tell us uh, that counselling wasn't the main reasons uh, that they felt that their experience at the university overall uh, was better. Uh, so, so uh, th- th- this is working, but uh, it, it's an area where, uh, of course, uh, we need to meet demand uh, and uh, we need to be. Uh, creative in terms of how we meet that demand. So technology comes into play, uh, but obviously we we also need to work more closely with the NHS uh, and uh, we need to uh, ensure that our face-to-face services are well-resourced as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You alluded to it a little bit in your answers, but um, I just wondered what your thoughts were on the role of technology and what role that may have to play in any of the changes that are happening across higher education. So, so, so technology, I think, we, will, will play a very significant role uh, at two levels, and they're very different. The first one is, is how we deliver uh, learning, teaching and support services. Um, and... Uh, there's more and more that, that we do uh, on that front. So a good example of, of what we do uh, in that space is, is our Library Anywhere project, mm. uh, which is designed uh, to provide access to most learning resources online uh, and in a way which is totally location independent uh, and that allows students to access course material, uh, to access uh, academic resources, but also uh, increasingly uh, a number of uh, support services online. Um, so uh, I've talked about the Library Anywhere project at, at Roehampton. I've talked about uh, the apps we have to support uh, students' well-being. Uh, increasingly, uh, we uh, make uh, an awful lot of academic material uh, available online, um, and we encourage uh, online tools uh, and technology in the classroom to facilitate learning. 
so there, there's an awful lot of that and, and the pace uh, of adoption uh, of, of learning technologies um, is one that's increasing all the time and, and clearly one that uh, universities uh, need to respond to. What's slightly new uh, is, uh, is technology around well-being. Uh, we, we're also uh, exploring a new service uh, that, that's delivered online um, around uh, mental fitness. Um, and uh, that, that's something that we, we're considering uh, adopting at Trohampton. And, uh, and I'm sure that increasingly a lot of our interaction with students is going to be mediated by technology. Um, so, so that's one aspect. The, the second aspect is, is ensuring that our students are ready for this world mm. uh, where technology um, is going to be all pervasive. And uh, in particular, I'm very mindful of, of artificial intelligence and the impact it's going to have uh, on the world of work, um, but also on our understanding of society. So um, we know that a lot of fairly highly skilled but technical jobs that are going to, to, to disappear or, or may be replaced by, by other types of jobs. Uh, in law, for instance, in accounting, uh, we know that these professions are going to be massively impacted by artificial intelligence. Uh, and we need to prepare our students in those subject areas uh, to, uh, to understand uh, our artificial intelligence and how to, to work with it. Um, and it's the same uh, across uh, other walks of life. Education, for instance, our, our, our trainee teachers uh, are going to need to understand uh, how uh, artificial intelligence can be used uh, to uh, to assess students' progress, uh, how it can be used uh, in terms uh, of supporting teacher-delivered education um, in schools and in colleges. Uh, there's also, I think, a, a kind of a, a broader issue that we need to prepare our students for, and that's the fact that a lot of artificial intelligence tools are not capable uh, of telling you why they reached a decision. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and that's a big departure from uh, algorithmic uh, information technology. Uh, so if you look at, uh, for instance, the use of artificial intelligence in health, there have been studies that show that uh, if you um, uh, feed um, uh, 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 a number of, of data to computer programs uh, to study someone's propensity for a heart attack, uh, artificial intelligence is, is probably better at telling whether someone is likely to have an, a heart attack in the next uh, 12 months than a cardiologist would be. Uh, the, the challenge is that um, no one can tell you why the technology can make better predictions. So, so we're entering a, a world where uh, we, we might be faced with decisions uh, about, uh, about our health, uh, decisions about uh, our, uh, our, our children's uh, health or education being taken uh, by computers that, that, that we don't understand. Um, and I, I think we, we have a duty as universities to ensure that our students um, know this, uh, to ensure that uh, they, they, uh, they, they reflect on it uh, and are prepared to work in a world uh, where uh, that's, that's going to be the norm. Uh, the, the other issue, of course, is, is artificial intelligence has been proven to, uh, 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 to, to kind of um, 
uh, re-emphasize uh, some discriminations or, or biases. So we know, for instance, that when artificial intelligence in, is used in, in recruitment, because the, uh, traditionally the, the people that have risen to the top of organizations have been men, uh, that the, uh, and if you feed the, the CVs of the applicants to the artificial intelligence software as a, a, an indication of who's going to rise to the top, the artificial intelligence software is going to mimic that uh, and typically suggest that uh, more men are recruited when actually what you want to do is diversify uh, your, your intake. So there, there's all sorts of uh, fairly deep uh, philosophical challenges that uh, we need to prepare our students for. Absolutely. Um, it's quite a minefield out there. Um, last question, because um, I'm mindful of your time today. Um, going beyond 2019, what do you see will be the pressing concerns of vice-chancellors if we're sort of looking at 2020 to 2025, say? And you've probably covered some of them in your last answer, but any, any others that would jump to mind? Yeah, so, so I would say, um, I mean, we still have... Uh, we're still going to have to address uh, issues of how the post-18 uh, system is, is structured. So that, that's not going to go away and universities are going to have to uh, adapt to that. Um, I, I think uh, layered on top of that is going to be a change in the demographics. Uh, mm. And uh, currently uh, we're at the tail end of, of a demographic dip. Uh, that's going to, to reverse uh, and quite rapidly, we're going to see uh, the number of uh, young people wanting to go to university or certainly wanting a post-18 uh, education uh, increasing uh, at a time where uh, the resources available uh, to, uh, to provide them with uh, a, a post-18 education are very unlikely to increase. Um, so I think we, we're all going to have to learn uh, to deliver education differently, uh, and, and that's across uh, the post-18 sector. Um, I, I think technology is going to uh, also be uh, increasingly important, and it's very, very important already. Um, but uh, I'm sure that educational technology is going to continue to evolve at a pace uh, that uh, it's going to be challenging for us to, to keep up uh, with. Um, and, and it's not just the use of technology, it's also students' expectations. So, so just to give you an example, um, you know, a, lo a lot of students now, uh, when, they, when they want to learn how to uh, apply makeup or do exercises, uh, do that by watching YouTube um, and, and increase, or, or, or even you know, cook, a, cook a recipe. Um, so so our, our students' expectation of how knowledge uh, is delivered, how training, if you want to call it that, uh, is delivered, uh, is changing. Um, and we, we as a sector uh, are going to have to adapt to that. Uh, we're going to have to, to adapt to the YouTube generation or, or, or the, 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 the kind of uh, whatever the next technology is going to be. And, uh, and again, you know, technology is going to influence the world of work more and more. So we've got to, we're going to have to work harder uh, to prepare our students for, for a, a tech-reliant society. Uh, and, uh, and beyond that, I think an economy uh, where uh, environmental issues um, mm. are, are going to be uh, much more dominant um, and our students are going to uh, need to be much more uh, aware, uh, much better equipped to deal with some of the environmental challenges 
and the resulting societal issues uh, that uh, emerge from those. And I think this is a this is an area where, uh, as a sector, uh, we uh, we need to to double up uh, on our efforts. Um, we, we've just revised our strategic plan at Roehampton and uh, we've set a number of targets uh, around our, our environmental performance. Uh, but, but overall, I think what, we, what we're noticing is that uh, Roehampton being a, a values-led university uh, is uh, more and more relevant uh, in, in the world uh, of, of today and also the world of tomorrow. Absolutely. Well, Professor Jean-Noël Isengard, thank you so much for your time today. No, thank you very much. Another higher education leader doing things a bit differently is Rachel Gower, Director for the Digital Institute London, a brand new campus for Staffordshire University based in the Olympic Park and focusing on preparing graduates for digital careers of the future. So uh, the Digital Institute is brand new. We opened our doors for the first time this September in 2019. We're part of Staffordshire University, which is based in Stoke-on-Trent. And uh, the university has always been at the forefront of digital education, uh, really groundbreaking in terms of one of the first universities to introduce things like games design some years ago. Um, And also the first university in the UK to launch an eSports degree. Um, So with those credentials, we decided that uh, now was a good time to uh, expand and to move into the the London campus, into the London market, Um, mainly because a lot of the people that I was working with on the eSports and the games design area were Mm. were London-centric, but also um, to be part of uh, and moving into the Here East Innovation Park. So that's based in uh, in Stratford on the Olympic Park. Um, It was the building that was set up and launched for the Olympics. Um, to house the broadcast and the media. Um, but it's been redeveloped into an innovation park and is home to you know hundreds of new businesses, also other universities, and it's created this real vibe of, of innovation, education, all wrapped around industry focus, all designed around jobs of the future, which was our real focus. Um, and so, so it's been a really exciting journey over the last nine months while we've been building and opening up for the first time. And, uh, and we're really happy to be part of that community. So, um, Rachel, with your perspective as director of the Digital Institute um, and this uh, exciting experience of setting up the new campus, from your point of view, what have been the pressing issues for the higher education sector in 2019? Yeah, it's, it, it's an interesting question. Um, so I think, I think where we start from with this is, is, is a recognition that we are at the beginning of what is the fourth industrial revolution. And with all the developments in genetics, artificial intelligence, robotics, nanotechnology, um, it, it's a time for universities to take stock and think, actually, are the courses that we're delivering now equipping our students with the skills that they need for the jobs of the future? Um, and there's never been change like it. So, so I think that you know this, this is a revolution. It's larger than anything we've ever seen. If we think about the impact of technology on all of our lives, from smart systems in homes and factories um, to, the, to the rise of the sharing economy where people will monetize everything from their empty house to their empty mm-hmm. car, it, 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 there are so many opportunities. Um, but, but that opportunity comes with a real challenge for universities that we, we need to take stock and think what we're delivering. We need to think, are all of the courses that we have, are the skills that we're delivering to people actually relevant for 
um, people to be going into jobs in careers of the future. Because if you think about a, a university student starting, they're not going to be emerging from that course for three or four years afterwards. And the pace of change is actually quicker than that. Um, so it's a real recognition that the challenges um, about delivering a subject are different now. So rather than delivering a subject, delivering knowledge and facts, which will have changed so quickly, it's much more for us now around delivering skills that are needed by people. Um, particularly if we start to think about sort of the, the impending change of um, consumption, production, employment, um, and all of those different changes that, that are going to require entire industries to adjust um, to transformation and to, and to the, the fact that some jobs are going to be threatened by redundancy, but others are going to be growing rapidly. And we're seeing that, you know, across the market now. And, and, if you, and if you look and if you speak to employers about the skills gaps, they are all in new up and coming tech areas where, where you know, where, where we haven't all caught up yet with actually what's happening. So it's clear that there's a real need for more talent in certain job categories. Um, and most businesses currently facing a major, you know, major talent shortages um, have experienced a few problems over the last couple of years. That's only going to get worse over the next five years. Um, because if you think about all of the people that are currently in work, they, they also need upskilling as well as the people that are new, are new into the market with, with different skills. And that accelerating pace of technological, demographic, socioeconomic disruption is actually transforming industry models and meaning that employers are uh, actually looking at a shortened shelf life for certain kinds of jobs, but not necessarily their employees. So it's, it's how are they going to upskill them? Um, so one of the challenges for universities, as well as thinking about the subjects it delivers, is how it delivers them. Yeah. So very you know, traditional degrees delivered over three stroke four years, full time student. That that is going to start to be disrupted by the fact that you know, and again, actually disrupted by technology, the fact that people can drop in and drop out of learning, they can, they can, you know, pick up individual modules, it can be much more dynamic, it can be tailored to them. Um, with, the, with the increase in uh, virtual learning environments, VLE, so, so we, we've obviously as a university been using VLE for some time, but it's becoming much cleverer and it's becoming much more personalised. Um, so as a university, all of the techno technological disruptions that are taking place across industry are also taking place within education. So not only do we have to be careful about the subjects and the delivering the skills, we also have to embed those skills in all of our teams and our staff to make sure that we are um, performing as a business would um, and picking up on, on those kinds of you know, machine learning, for instance, and refocusing to make sure that our students can use this technology, but also our staff as well. Absolutely. I mean, um, you may have covered some of this off in your last answer, but my next question was going to be if you know, if you zoom in a little bit, what role will technology have to play in any changes that are required across higher education? Um, I think that's quite a hard one because it's almost like, you know, someone trying to predict the future. Um, and, and part of the problem that everyone's got now is that everything is moving so quickly, um, but, but, but yet our systems and processes aren't necessarily in line with that. And we're not used to being, a, being the most dynamic of sectors as universities. You know, we're, we're often accused of, you know, dragging our heels and being a bit slow on the uptake. But I think, I think you know, over, over the last uh, five years when number caps were dropped and universities um, started to become and realised that they had to be competitive, they've started to understand that they need to have the same kind of skill sets as people in the private sector do as well. And so whilst most jobs require 
you know a, re a real wide range of skills there's also a real wide expectation of the different skills combinations for the future so, so they're going to change that, that different skill set with regard to the over, overall scale of demand for jobs if you look at, at the skills it's like more than one third of all jobs across all industries are expected to require complex problem solving in the past it wouldn't have been anywhere near that rate you know that's that's a third of all jobs are saying okay we need you to be a complex problem solver in order to you know benefit our business and move our business forward in the past there was much more focus on physical abilities perhaps on technical abilities but also on knowledge as well and the knowledge is the one that really has dropped down in the in the scale of of importance in in terms of what's what's needed um, because as I said before, by the time a student gets to the end of the course, the knowledge is, is pointless. But what is the most important skill they can leave is the ability to learn and then relearn and then learn again. Because that's how, that's how you keep moving forward. So it's almost this innovation kind of mentality and culture that we want to promote, not only with our students, but also with our teams of staff as well. And we've started to adopt, again, um, technological ways of doing that so we have you know we have hackathons at the university and we sit down and we all get in a room and we think okay how are we going to solve this problem how are we going to make it happen and then we have sprints in the same way and we are acting in an agile way so that we can actually then make things happen in a much quicker way um, an example of that actually is the institute so the institute wasn't even a, a concept this time last year this time last year no, nobody had even thought that we were going to open a, a campus in uh, you know in London um, and it was actually pretty much 12 months that we started thinking about, okay, where are we going next? What do we want to do with this? Where are the opportunities? Um, we started looking in London. We looked at different places. Um, and when we came to here East, and we didn't even get the lease signed and sealed and everything until May, but we were open by September. Yeah, that, that's quite that's quite a feat, you know, for, for any sector, let alone the university sector. So I think I think that's a real recognition that Staffordshire University is starting to adopt this agile way of moving forward and actually recognizing that um, the skills that are needed need to be embedded with us as well. Fantastic. I love that story. Um, I can only imagine the excitement in some of those meetings. <laughs> And I mean, you're already doing things quite differently to probably a lot of universities out there. If you were to look forward again, sort of more out towards 2025, what kind of things do you think will be the concerns of universities then if you're to look sort of broadly across the sector? Um, I think as, as we move forward, I mean, the, the Digital Institute is a different kind of university. Um, it is the university of the future. We're open plan. We don't have a lecture theatre, for instance. We have um, spaces where people can come together and collaborate. So collaboration is one of the one of the real key skills that's needed by industry. And that's something that we recognize and we treat as, as part of our ev everyday delivery. Um, but also we recognize the fact that um, we want to be delivering courses where they're interdisciplinary so in the future I would like to think that a student could come and enroll on a course with a title like let's think of any title so computer games design but they start on the course but then can study that module the first module on the course they can study it from home they can study it at the university um, they can study one and then have a bit of a break and then come back and do a bit more depending on what they need but also choose modules from across other other areas so it might be that they they've got a real passion and interest in uh, broadcast so they might then want to come and do one of our esport broadcast modules as well so 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 customizing i suppose is the right word customizing yeah. the experience of our students so that so that 
each student can go on their own journey which suits their career path which suits their their ideas about how they want to learn when they want to learn um, but also the the big thing that's changed in the job market if you like is the fact that um, in the past people might have four maybe five jobs in their lifetime nowadays many people in their 20s have had four, five jobs so people are moving on quicker they're, they're they're sort of testing testing ideas out they don't mind changing careers they don't mind changing countries or locations it's much more flexible so really as a university what we want to be doing is is providing them with the opportunity that, that, that they can follow that with their studies and that if they want to they could they could pick up and do a you know a whole degree or in one subject area but equally they could pick up and do options and drop-ins and then they could decide that actually I'm going to go to New Zealand for six months but I don't mm -hmm. want to stop studying and I'm going to study I'm going to st keep studying this particular module whilst I'm there so so the, the the real challenge with that is is obviously is obviously making systems and processes catch up with that um, and and everyone that's worked in and, and had experience of, of any kind of large-scale business the larger you get the less agile you become and it makes it really hard to make those quick decisions quick wins and it, it makes it increasingly hard to be customer focused so a real big thing that we're working on at the moment at the university is around CX so customer experience and that fits in with a lot of industries as well so we're looking at the increase of chatbots and machine learning and AI and the university already had it has its own bot um, and this bot gives advice to students and recommendations so uh, it, it learns so the more the more we ask it questions the more answers it can come up with and students are already benefiting from that and it's only growing that that kind of experience which is which is again customized 24 7 anytime any place anywhere um, but but also the, the bots are learning how to solve problems for people as well on a small scale so so moving forward the the real skills and the other other social skills of persuasion emotional intelligence and teaching other those are the ones that are going to be in high demand because they're not the skills that can be replicated by robots in such a way so we're making sure that uh, we're starting to consider and build into our business plans how these these disruptive changes are going to influence our budgets for the future but most importantly, the student experience. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so final question, what people, projects or resources inspire you in this space? So on this mad journey of uh, developing the Institute, any any other resources that you'd love to share with our listeners? Um, yeah, so there have, there have been lots of inspirational ideas. And, and I know when we started looking at how we wanted this to work, we, we, we knew that the environment was a massive influence to how people uh, how people learn, how people interact with their environment. And because we wanted to create people with a wide range of, of the collaborative skills, of the creative, innovative problem-solving skills that industry are telling us they need, we knew that our space had to reflect that and allow that to happen. Um, so, so creating a, 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 a campus, if you like, which is, like I said, open plan, um, we, we visited um, you know, various other offices of companies. We, we really like the way that we work the way that they've set up and the fact that people can drop in drop out there's there's a community there that fits around it so so we we use some of that kind of thinking um, but we're also really inspired by a lot of the work that, that Google um, Facebook 
and, and all of these offices where, where, where you, as you walk in, you, you feel like you've entered another world and that you stepped away from reality. And, and in this space, it's space, it's a, it's a space where you can make mistakes. You can come up with ideas. It's a safe space to, to try out things that, that might not work. You know, who cares if it doesn't work first time? You know, let's try something else. Let's do it again and do it again and let's learn from that. Mm -hmm. And so the kind of space that we wanted to create was very much around, around that informal, open plan. Uh, there, we don't have any offices. So, so our staff don't sit apart from the students. We just all hot desk. We're all open. We're all available. We just all sit where we sit, and you know, at, at break time, we all just sit around in the in the big kitchen and have a chat about things. Because it's that informal communication that that is actually driving innovation, and that's something that that people are missing when they're working in in separate offices or or in in almost sometimes in these really big open plan offices where you're in mm -hmm. your little cubicle shut away from the world. We wanted everything to be out in the open, and and to for people to bounce ideas off each other. I love it. I can't wait to come and visit. <laughs> You're more than welcome. Um, so Rachel, I think that's about it. So thank you very much for your time today. And really exciting to hear about it all developing. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot, Rachel. Bye-bye. Bye. Joseph A. Purnell is the president at the Universitat Alberta de Catalunya, focused on lifelong learning, personalization, and student support using online and e-learning. Its students come from 134 countries internationally. Josep reflects on how the UOC began and the broader implications for universities generally as they grapple with the longer term future. This recording took place at the Horizons event in Paris. Okay, fantastic. So I'm here with Josep Planel, president of uh, UOC or UOC, I think. Uh, WOC. WOC. Walk. Okay, brilliant. Um, Josep, um, I saw you presenting earlier. I thought it was really interesting. Um, you talked about the university being set up in the 90s and um, the sort of foundational question being, what could you enable uh, through the use of technology at your university? And uh, I just wondered if you could share with our listeners um, that kind of founding story and what Walk's all about. Well, yes, um... When, when the decision was taken to create a, a distance university in, a, in, in Catalonia, in Spain, um, the, um, obviously there was a discussion, uh, distance, well, how, should, uh, how should it be? Uh, and um, because the, the first uh, president was, uh, was a kind of a techie, uh, he knew about uh, internet. Remember that uh, internet start, started to uh, uh, became uh, public for uh, for all kinds of users uh, by the fall of 1994, mm -hmm. and that was precisely when the, uh, the 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 university was thought to start. Eh? So all the, the 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 preparations were taking place by late 94. And beginning in '95. In fact, the law that approved the creation of the of the university in the Catalan Parliament is from April April 1995. And by September 1995, the first cohort of students started. So, the what I like to say is that what these people did when uh, this is um, uh, the, the founder parents of the university did, and what's brilliant from them, was not to ask themselves. Uh, how technology could help them to do what universities usually do in more in a more efficient manner, 
but what they ask themselves is what technology would allow them to do that you currently cannot do in a face-to-face university. And that led, led them to, to, to rethink the pedagogical model. So instead of having a pedagogical model like in a face-to-face university where the teacher is the center of the activity, mm-hmm. the teacher which, with its art craft of uh, PowerPoint or, uh, or whatever, uh, does all the activity and transmits the, his knowledge to the students, uh, what this, uh, the, what the, the, the pedagogical model of the of the UOC is that the activity of the student is at the center. So the student learns by doing. Mm-hmm. And then what the university does is to provide resources, so textual resources like PDF or, uh, or uh, books or whatever, plus multimedia resources, plus sound resources, etc. Then there is a... a, uh, um, a uh, a um, instructor to which the student can refer, ask questions or, uh, or discuss. Uh, this instructor will program the essays that the student will have to, pro- to, to do during the course. And finally, there is a peer-to-peer contact among the, uh, the students in, uh, in, uh, in their uh, virtual classroom that they can uh, work together. Thank you. I loved what you put earlier um, or mentioned earlier in your presentation. You said um, technology has allowed the commodification of education, but what we need is a transformed education for our society. Um, And you talked about the higher education business model should support citizens as society changes and then they need to adapt with lifelong learning. Um, So when you kind of look back on 2019 and look forward to how universities might evolve over the next sort of two to five years, Um, how do you sort of see that playing out? So that university still supporting society's needs as they evolve? Um, uh, Well, the the, um, universities will uh, will play uh, or are playing and uh, and will keep playing uh, uh, an important role which uh, their social impact. Social impact because they, they transform the human landscape in which, uh, in which they are. Because uh, by providing higher, uh, uh, higher education to the citizenship, you improve the quality of life, you, uh, you make a, be- a better world in a way. And in fact, when you think about, uh, about the Agenda 2030 uh, proposed by the United Nations, uh, which personally I believe... Uh, they are. This agenda is as important as the Human Rights Declaration because the agenda uh, focuses on planetary problems. When you the agenda talks about clean water, clean air, clean land, um, uh, sustainable energy, uh, gender issues, um, etc. Uh, these are human rights, and this is uh, better citizen, citizenship. Is this? Uh, moving to a better uh, human life in general. And therefore, there is where universities need to play because these SDGs will not be uh, reached, will not be achieved without knowledge. And that's what the university can provide, the knowledge to achieve these SDGs. Thank you very much. Thank you to you. To round off this episode, I spoke to Sigrid Carlsson, president of the KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Sweden, 
She spoke about the need to better utilise digital technologies to contribute to the university's approach to helping to combat climate change. K-State Royal Institute of Technology was founded in 1827. I'm the 19th president and the first that is female. Uh, I'm professor in polymeric materials uh, and is an alumni of KTH and have had all my research and teaching career at KTH. To dig in a little bit more, um, with your vice chancellor perspective or, or that of the president, um, what have you seen to be the sort of pressing issues of 2019 in higher education and technology? The the most, I would say, concerns or, or what has occupied me mm. the most during 2019 has been a couple of things. Uh, one thing has been uh, resources and uh, financial support for research infrastructure mm. that is more and more pressing uh, over the years to come, how that will work. Uh, more and more research rely heavily on, on quite expensive infrastructure. So that's one, one thing that I occupy my mind a lot. Uh, the other thing is, is the, the negotiation and the outcome of Horizon Europe, and how much funding will be in it, uh, and how can KTH and our researchers apply for and also receive more funding. Um, and the third thing that I think is important for us uh, in, in Sweden and in at KJ especially is the academic relation, international academic relations, uh, where we on the one hand see that there are a couple of countries in the world that uh, not really go along with academic freedom and the autonomy of the universities. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, it's also important for us with the relationship with UK uh, and what happens after Brexit. Uh, so we are in fact going to travel and visit a couple of uh, universities from from Scotland and down to England in the springtime in order to really see that we have good relationship with UK uh, universities. Well, that is heartening to hear as well. So um, I was at an event uh, this morning and yesterday, the Times Higher Education live event and um, yeah, continuing that collaboration is essential, I think. Yes, it's for us as well. Uh, and we, of course, are worried from the fact that uh, within European Union, if Brexit goes along as it is, we will not have the top-ranked universities uh, If you, in any <laughs> ranking list. Uh, the UK, some of them are on the top <laughs> in the world. Um, if we zoom in a bit closer, um, thinking about those concerns... What role do you see um, that te- technology may have to play in um, supporting any of the changes that are required across higher education? Yeah, then uh, I, I see that we, if we are going to transform the teaching and learning at our university, it's important that, that we are, I would say, rather leading the transformation by using digitalization in every aspect uh, at the same time that it's important to remember that the university has, since its first university started, the physical place has, mm. has been important. The meeting place, the study environment, has physical study environment is important. But to really prosper from all different kinds of digital solution is, is very important for us at the moment. 
And have you got any specific initiatives um, taking place um, at the moment in terms of some of that digital transformation that you mentioned? Uh, what we have been doing for a couple of years is is invested in in uh, I think the largest number in uh, among the Swedish university in uh, MOOCs mm-hmm. uh, as a tool to learn how to make uh, use of the dig- digital solutions. Uh, so now we are, are we are talking a lot about blended classroom. Um, computer-supported home assignments, computer-supported examinations, use of a filmed, rather than meeting the students in lecture halls, use of films instead in order to, to when we meet the students, focus on, on the discussions and the questioning. Mm-hmm. You know, you will have been involved in many different um, senior leadership positions within higher education. Um, I wondered how you're seeing the role of um, president or vice chancellor developing over time. So, you know, whether it's being um, influenced by things that we see in business, for example, um, you know, looking outside of the university or or how you're seeing the president role evolve. Uh, I've seen the president role evolve as as, uh, much more demanding from the perspective that there are more external demands and Mm. expectations, but there is also more uh, more and more demand on on controlling various aspects of what we do, uh, which takes up a lot of time, not only for the president, but for all other people, researchers, administrators, etc., uh, so that I've seen coming with time, at the same time that the resources is staying put at the same level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we need more as president or vice chancellors to be out in society and in industry and, and explain and, and discuss, explain what we are doing and why we are doing in a certain way and also this the expectation to to have them more realistic mm-hmm. to help set the narrative a bit <laughs> yes absolutely to, to do that mm. so just two more questions um one was and and this might be tiring to think of but um you know going beyond 2019 and thinking more out towards 2025 you know what you see in the long term as some of the concerns that you'll have to think about um, and then the second one was thinking about whether you have any, you know, books, people or projects that have inspired your way of thinking around this subject that you'd like to share with our listeners. Uh, okay, I, uh, um, what I see coming and it's really important is, at least in Sweden, we discuss about the climate impact that mm. universities climate impact. So that's, I think, an issue that we need to to discuss and ponder on how we do with that, because being international university means travel, or do we develop even better digital solutions, for example, in those things that we do that have an impact on, on climate. So we meet more and more students that are demanding in sustainable development, and they rightly should be. Uh, but there is also a lot of possibility within that concept of sustainable development that we can be role models for the general society so that's the possibilities but if we have the recent IPCC report and also mm. other things 
come the last days. It's important that we take that responsibility. At the same time, at KTH being an engineering university, technical university, our research can really contribute to a lot of different things with climate and sustainable development. And books, um, I read a lot of this uh, about the new, how you develop new university. And I have one report, it's rather, that came quite a while ago, which has to do, it's a comparison between how we build old university that's been successful or old that is not as successful and how we build totally new universities and, and what's happening in some part of Asia is very interesting from that point of view. Well, we can always add that to our show notes. When, mm-hmm. uh, so. I can maybe send you some some examples of what I'm inspiring. I'm going to start to read. It's more for, for fun, this biological novelty. There was a president of MIT, a woman, the first woman, the only woman so far. She has written some interesting new books, which I am going to read over Christmas. <laughs> Fantastic. That's what we all love when we have a bit of time off. Let's get, get a good book out. Yes, um, yes, of course. Well, um, Sigrid, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I truly appreciate that. And um, yeah, we look forward to sharing this with our listeners. Mm, thank you. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening in and a huge thank you to all of my guests for giving their time and expertise and for salesforce.org for supporting this series. You can continue the conversation online at hashtag edtechedge, at podcastedtech and at salesforce.org on all the social medias or for all the show notes including resource and reading recommendations it's www.theedtechpodcast.com. Have a great week, happy 2019 to you all, and see you next year for our final two episodes in this series. Bye-bye.